You're tuned in to the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5. Welcome. Later in the broadcast, we'll be talking with Brianna Thomas about her book. It's called Black Broadway in Washington, D.C. But first, there's a new person taking the helm of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. He stepped into the role amid a global pandemic and at a critical time in our country's reckoning with race and the black experience. He joins me now. Kevin Young is the Andrew W. Mellon Director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. He's also a poet, author, essayist, and editor. Kevin Young, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Kevin, first of all, welcome to D.C. I know you and your family recently moved here. Um, How was the move from New York, and how are you enjoying our fair city so far? I'm enjoying it a lot. Uh, It's a great town. I've been here before, of course, but uh, to live here has been really a pleasure. And, um, you know, I can see the Washington Monument uh, right now, so uh, I feel pretty welcome. And uh, I can almost see the museum, but um, being at the museum has been really special. And, um, you know, it's such a temple to African-American history and culture and its centrality in the American story. And and being right on the mall there and seeing the uh, monument uh, is really powerful. Why did you take this position? Well, I mean, in many ways, it's a dream job in the sense that I've been thinking for a long time as a writer about this very question of African-American history and culture and helping to make culture, helping to think about it. uh, It's been a lot of my life's work. Um, But of course, being here at the center of that conversation, um, and I think the museum has really shifted how we think about uh, where black culture uh, best resides, and it resides everywhere. You know, we, we see it in every turn. You turn on the TV, you log online, you see it. But I also think it really thinks about the history uh, and the ways that it sustained um, American culture, but also sustained black people. And in this particular time when we're facing twin pandemics of uh, COVID and racism, I think the museum has an ever-important role. You are succeeding Lonnie Bunch, who is now the secretary of the Smithsonian. Um, yeah. Did, did, did he have a role in persuading you to take this position? <laughs> Very much. I mean, one of the <laughs> appeals was both to uh, work, uh, you know, uh, in an institution that uh, uh, Secretary Bunch is leading, but also a place that he helped, you know, found and set up in the museum. And um, obviously, it's such an important place. We, uh, when we were open fully, we had two million people a year who came through our, our doors to uh, view things like uh, the first portrait of Harriet Tubman, known um, Emmett Till's casket. Uh, the things that I think are so powerful and central to telling the story of a people, but also of a nation as a whole. We're talking with Kevin Young. He is the now director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. A lot of people know you as a poet, an author, essayist, and editor, and you'll soon be inducted into the Academy of Arts and Letters for your literary work. How does your experience as a poet and writer shape your approach to leading museums? Well, I think poets are involved in in, uh, connection and, and making meaning. Uh, And that's very much something that a museum does, and especially uh, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which is so good at making connections and and creating context for you as you walk from the slavery and freedom galleries into the soaring space and and ascend literally up the 
the museum. And so for me, the kind of making a meaning, the connecting things that maybe don't seem alike, but suddenly you understand are, that's part of the poet's job. And the poet also can have a kind of improvisatory quality. You know, um, we're not jazz musicians by any means, but we're certainly influenced by them. And we're certainly uh, people who think about uh, how you can take and tell a story uh, through what you have, you know, what you're given. And I think that's what the museum has done a wonderful job of, of telling the story of African-American people in this uh, nation. In 2012, you published your first nonfiction book, it's called The Gray Album on the Blackness of Blackness. Your essays explore how essential black culture is in the American experience. Can you explain that, please? Yeah, you know, when I started out writing that book, it took a number of years to write it. Uh, I was already writing poetry, and, uh, you know, turning to essays was a way of, I think, explaining myself to myself, um, but also thinking about black culture. And I started out trying to think about how, what was black about American culture, uh, and the answer I found fairly quickly was a lot, if not everything. And so there was a, this centrality, uh, this dominant culture that I found in blackness. But then I also started thinking about what makes black culture black, you know, and what makes it unique. Uh, and those kind of explorations are ones that the museum was undergoing. I, of course, did not know this, uh, but around the same time in a way. And uh, it coming uh, and opening in 2016, we're looking ahead to our fifth anniversary this fall, it's a way of thinking about, uh, for me, it's like coming home because, you know, I've been thinking about these things and what's unique about black culture on my own and to be here and, and help others think about it and help others view it as they come and visit uh, is really important. And it's been great to see that kind of come full circle for me. Why is the book called The Grey Album? <laughs> <laughs> There's a few reasons. Um, uh, there was a very important um, hip-hop record uh, by DJ Danger Mouse called The Grey Album, where he took uh, the vocals from the Black Album by Jay-Z, as you may know, and, and uh, uh, mixed them up with um, the White Album by The Beatles. It's a tremendous uh, effort. Uh, and I actually knew Danger Mouse back in the day. Um, used to see him because uh, we both live in the same town in Athens, Georgia, where I first taught. And um, he worked like in the record store, and I would see him. And you know, I bought some early Danger Mouse mixes and stuff. And then to see him do this thing, and it helped me explain that kind of mix of culture. Uh, the book was kind of not where it would have been without realizing that was a great metaphor for thinking about uh, the future of culture and how culture and Americanness were uh, intertwined with blackness and, and whiteness, uh, and of course many other things. But those two things uh, came to bear and to the and fore. Here now is Phyllis in Washington, D.C. Phyllis, you are on the air. Go ahead, please. Thanks very much. Mr. Young, I, I am so excited to have happened upon this broadcast because I'm studying your poetry. Uh, I'm taking a class for seniors at OSHA Lifelong Learning Institute. How and wonderful. I, I'll soon be 92. Oh, my goodness. I tell you, I'm enjoying this poetry so very much. And it was just like kismet. I'm, I was on my way home from a dental appointment, and <laughs> when I heard you were going to be on the air, I was thrilled. So I'm just really wanting to tell you how much I appreciate your work and how much I love that museum. Uh, I have only been able, uh, due to this virus, I attended the fourth floor. I was there for several hours and felt sure. I still needed to go back. But it was that cultural display was really incredible. Thank you so much. That means a lot. 
Phyllis, thank you very much for your call. You do have to take that museum one floor at a time. (laughs) (laughs) You do. I I split it up into a couple days and still didn't see everything when I first went. Some of our listeners may know you as the poetry editor of The New Yorker. Will you continue in that role? Yeah, I've continued in that role. And, you know, uh, especially during COVID and quarantine, we really started publishing uh, work that could speak to, I think, our moment. And one of the nice things that being at a weekly magazine is that you can get, you know, have an event uh, and then run a poem that relates to it. For instance, there's a tremendous poem called, simply called George Floyd by the poet Terrence Hayes uh, that we ran mm-hmm. last summer. And uh, it just powerfully captured, and I think poetry can do this, both the timeliness and the timelessness. Uh, and that kind of quality, I think, is really crucial to poetry. Uh, I recently said po- poems are the best form of, most efficient form of time travel, and I think that's true. They can take us other places, but they can also name the moment uh, as well as anything. And the, for me, that's the same experience I have in the museum. It really creates that sense of the immediacy, and we're really working on collecting now, collecting material related to, for instance, uh, the Black Lives Matter Plaza here in D.C. We have a banner from there that we collected, um, but also trying to think about how we can capture this current moment because we're living in history. History is alive in us, and how do we uh, collect it and name it? Well, you've just recently moved to Washington, but as they say, you can run, but you can't hide. Here's Kennedy in Columbia, Maryland. Kennedy, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi. Yes. Uh, first of all, welcome to the D.C. area. I'm a native Kansan, and actually, I've been in the one-year-plus training program uh, to be a docent there at the African oh, how wonderful. Museum. Uh, it's a very intense program, but I've learned so much. But welcome aboard. Um, just a, a small antidote. Uh, your dad was my family's uh, ophthalmologist. Oh, um, amazing! Ophthalmologist. Um, yeah, yeah. Yes, he was. ophthalmologist. He um, was when um, we lived in the Topeka area, and oh, I remember amazing. your mom was um, a chemist. Is a chemist probably, Correct. and was secretary of uh, health and environment. So small, small world. But it's a small world. <laughs> yes, Indeed, um, it is. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, that was, it's a special place, uh, Topeka. It's a place I've written about, um, and you know where there's other poets from. Langston Hughes uh, lived there. Gwendolyn Brooks uh, was born there, um, and and to come from there, and you know I've written about this too. That uh, in uh, my church in Topeka is where Linda Brown of Brown v. Board went, and where Reverend Brown, uh, who helped file the case, and you know these were the symbolic centers of the case that helped desegregate this country, or at least start that process. Um, you know, were there. Uh, you know, the Reverend had passed on, but Linda Brown was there every week playing piano, and so to be so close to history, I think of that a lot when I think of Kansas. And I appreciate you. Uh, someone else recently told me that they had uh, my dad had seen them as a, or they had seen my dad as a physician. And, you know, he was uh, a remarkable guy who, you know, was one of the first to go to college in his family and went all the way through med school. So uh, it's special to remember that too. And Kennedy, thank you very much for your call. We'll be taking a short break. I'm Kojo Nambi.
Hyatt's, Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club. Welcome back. Our guest is Kevin Young. He is the director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American and His- African American History and Culture. He's also a poet, author, essayist, and editor. Kevin Young, you were most recently the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. That's a 95-year-old research library that's part of the New York Public Library System. The Schomburg is dedicated to research and preservation of African American, African diaspora, and African experiences. However, now you're leading a museum that's less than five years old. What are the greatest challenges and, at the same time, the greatest opportunities that you see in heading up a newer museum, and how do you see their missions as different? Well, as a newer museum, uh, you know, in the latest Smithsonian, we're the 19th Smithsonian, you know, there are a lot of things we got to explore, like we could build a green building, which we've done. Um, But I think the challenges are, are... ones that are sort of facing all of us right now in the midst of these twin pandemics of COVID and, uh, you know, racial injustice, uh, some of which uh, indicate to us it's a precedented time, not an unprecedented one. And, um, you know, 100 years ago, we're, we're looking ahead. I don't know if looking ahead is the right term, but we're getting ready to commemorate the Tulsa massacre from 1921 um, at the museum. And so, you know, I think a lot about the long uh, tale that we tell, which is to say, we're really good at understanding and helping others understand the context of how we got here, of what African Americans have endured, have thrived, have survived, their resilience and their resistance. Uh, and I think that's really important in this moment. Uh, the Schomburg does a terrific job of doing that too, and it's just a different scale, I think, um, you know, uh, in terms of visitorship and everything like that. But the Schomburg has a very large archive. Uh, I think it's 11 million items now, uh, and it includes some collections that I helped get there, including Harry Belafonte and uh, Ruby Dee and Ossie Davis. And those actors and activists, I think, tell that story, which is also a story that the museum tells. Um, and, you know, we have really key objects, and we can show objects at the museum. And we can also provide that visitorship, that experience of walking through the galleries. And what we're, the challenge we're facing right now is helping people have that experience online. It's not enough to just show the objects or shoot them or, or film them or provide uh, access, which we do do, but it's also trying to recreate the emotional feeling of that exhibition. Uh, the soaring feeling is one we're really capturing now. And we're looking to this fall and our fifth anniversary as a way to launch that uh, museum online uh, and that online Smithsonian that is so important, I think, and especially this digital present we find ourselves in. Here now is KC in Bowie, Maryland. KC, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Good morning, Mr. Young. I, I too, have just kind of happened on this show. It's a great show, Kojo, great show. Um, I wondered, when the museum does open, will you have live, um, live? Uh, I don't know, I won't call them acts, but people like Amanda Gorman or or, or others uh, that come through in the evening and do uh, special programs. Um, uh, You're talking about 
spoken word performances or presumably actors. Sure. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we were open a little bit in the fall, uh, I think about two months. Um, we had limiter, <coughs> excuse me, limited visitors, um, you know, per guidelines, and um, that was very successful. People re did return, um, and I'm hoping we'll be able to reopen again once, uh, you know, the numbers uh, trend the right way and, um, you know, maybe as soon as this spring. But, you know, I, I think that Will there be large crowds? I'm not sure that will be uh, in any institution's future right now, but you know, um, I'm hopeful that as people uh, are safely in this space that we can uh, make that happen. You know, safety is our paramount uh, thought right now, um, both for our visitors and our staff. And so um, certainly one of the great things is people can be uh, online and experience that in wherever they are, but we will return, I, I assume, soon, I'm not sure when, to having some version of that live experience, because uh, I do think that's very important. Um, but, you know, it might be that people are filmed live and you get to see it from the comfort of your home or wherever, uh, but I'm excited to get back in the space, as I know you are. Casey, thank you very much for your call. You mentioned earlier that these times that we are living in in terms of racial injustice might be precedented or certainly not unprecedented. So I want to ask about a specific project the museum is working on, a new exhibit on reconstruction that is set to open in the fall. Tell yes. us about that exhibit and why the museum is undertaking it now. Well, it's really important, I think, to think about this moment after slavery um, and how black folks sought to define themselves as free and equal citizens after the end of it um, and how they reshaped the nation in those times, but then how sort of questions of voting rights and access to the political process were uh, both raised and then often thwarted. Um, Reconstruction's promises, its successes and its failures, they really shed light on issues of race and citizenship Uh, that continue to reverberate, you know, and I, I think one of the powerful parts of the show will be the history of Reconstruction, but we also are really focused on the legacies uh, and some current uh, aspects of that legacy are really going to be powerful for visitors. Uh, and it's slated to open right around our anniversary, which is the 24th of September this fall. Jerry sent us an email saying that an earlier caller mentioned the study group I lead on poetry from your anthology of back poetry. Please say a, li please say a little about your approach to selecting poems for that book. Yeah, I, uh, this fall um, I, I was the release of a book called African American Poetry, 250 Years of Struggle and Song that I edited for Library of America. And it's about a thousand pages. And, you know, that was hard to get down to because we, it's such a rich tradition. And, um, you know, what I was really trying to explore there was thinking of everyone from Phyllis Wheatley to the present. Uh, and it was very important to include the present. Um, because the poets writing today are so exciting and, and writing great things, and people got to hear Amanda Gorman, uh, you know, uh, from the inaugural stage, and, and it's been incredible to see how much people have turned to poetry and returned to poetry in this moment. And uh, the anthology kind of tells that story of going from uh, its beginnings with Wheatley uh, and enslavement and freedom to the present day. And really, I was trying to create a breadth of 
the poetic experience, but also depth. You know, you can't just put one poem by Langston Hughes, or I couldn't. Um, the hardest thing was not to put 50 poems by Langston Hughes, <laughs> um, and instead to really represent uh, the full flavor of, say, the Harlem Renaissance, and uh, which was a really vital time. Uh, it had lots of women writers, many of whom who didn't end up publishing books. Uh, there were a lot of gay lesbian writers. So I want to really include the full range of black poetry. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, there are almost 250 poets in there. Uh, and I think it really uh, helped to have that breadth to show uh, how exciting, but also how timely it is. Again, I was struck by how much people have been writing about these same questions that came to the fore last summer for many of us um, for years. Uh, there's many uh, poems about Emmett Till, for instance. Um, you could do it in a whole anthology of just that. And I was struck by how his legacy, his memory, uh, his remembering and his mother, Mamie Till's act of displaying his lynched body are so resonant for us today. And, you know, when I was finishing it last Juneteenth, it was just really powerful to realize this anthology had been telling me about this uh, for years and for centuries. Black folks have been writing about it. Uh, and you see much the same in the museum uh, where you get to see actual, the actual glass top casket that Emma Till was buried in. And it's such a powerful pilgrimage uh, to make. And, and so for me, th these things are all connected, the museum and the anthology and the work I do. And it's just great to be able to lead it and have people come and see uh, up close what we're up to. Only about a minute left, but I understand there's a hip-hop anthology in the works. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, it's an exciting uh, thing. It's as much a book as it is, you know, tracks. Um, I, I you know, it's the music I grew up with. And, and so to hear everything from Run DMC to MC Light and, and people singing about uh, some of these same questions, social injustice, but also joy, pleasure, um, anger, and, and also just making you move. I mean, I think that's part of our rich tradition. And, um, you know, it's... it's uh, one that's complicated, and what I love is the book is able to explore the complexity of this music that is one of the most popular musics, as you know, in the world. Um, you know, we also have an important initiative with HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities, uh, where we're helping them uh, to care for their archives and share them. So we're really excited about the future and looking ahead to the fifth anniversary. Kevin Young is the director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. He's also a poet, author, essayist, and editor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kojo. Next up is Brianna Thomas. She'll talk about her book, Black Broadway in Washington, D.C. I'm Kojo Namdi. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.